0: john 8:31 so jesus was saying to those jews who had believed him if you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free they answered him we are abraham's descendants and have never yet been a slave to anyone how is it that you say you will become free jesus answered them truly truly i say to you everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever, so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and it is truly our desire that your word might inform our thinking our theology, our approach to ministry, our evangelism, and our entire lives. We want to be a people of the book, people informed and transformed by your word. We pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ, and may we bring every thought and every ideology under obedience and subservience to your word, that you might be glorified through us as your people. Instruct us now in the truth, we pray, O Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. As Americans, we are known, maybe around the world and certainly in our own nation, as a people who value freedom, though i got to be honest with you, I think that the number of Americans who value freedom as much as I do are becoming fewer and fewer in number. We are known as a free people. We have a free constitution. We have, at least in writing, guaranteed a number of freedoms, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. These are all freedoms that we enjoy. Even today, as a free people, our diplomats and our politicians and our representatives speak continually about spreading freedom throughout the world. And America, at least in the eyes of most people throughout our history, has been known as a people who valued freedom and the blessings which freedoms bring. And being a free people is a good thing, and freedom is truly a genuine blessing. And it is concerning to us, I think, to most people at least who love freedom, to see a lot of our freedoms begin to erode and begin to in some cases disappear at a breakneck speed um as freedoms are systematically redefined or taken away from us or just simply moved onto a back shelf and we don't no longer talk about them in the interests of security and if, for Christians that can be very disconcerting because unlike unbelievers we understand one value of freedom that most unbelievers do not understand and that is the freedom to Practice and proclaim the gospel. For 200 years, the freedoms that we have had secured by our founding documents and our founding fathers have been used by Christians and missionaries and churches to freely practice and proclaim the gospel. So to see freedoms disappear is concerning, disconcerting to us, to say the least. Some people value freedom so much that they are willing to sacrifice their In the words of the Declaration of Independence, I think I'm getting this right, their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, to secure those. And we are familiar with men and women who who join our armed forces, and they give even their lives in the defense of freedoms because we value freedom as a principle. We are familiar with the idea of having free trade, free markets, free commerce, free enterprise, free constitution, and freedoms. We value those things. We understand those things. What is ironic as Americans is that as you travel around and talk to people, And this may be just a complete mental disconnect. You don't have to travel far to find people who say they value freedom, but they do not have a value for a freedom which is more valuable than any other freedom that has ever been offered or can ever be secured. Do you know what that freedom is? Freedom from sin. Freedom from sin is more valuable than free speech. Freedom from sin is more valuable than a free press. It is more valuable than free markets. It is more valuable than a free constitution. Freedom from sin is the single greatest, most valuable freedom that can ever be granted or given to anyone in any situation at any time ever. It is more valuable. You know why? Because it is eternal. It is eternal. American freedoms are not eternal. Someday you are going to be subject to a king and you are going to do His will, and you are going to bow your knee, and you will give Him obedience without question. His name is Jesus. But your freedoms that you enjoy now will disappear someday. But the freedom from sin, that is a freedom that is eternal. That is a freedom which lasts forever and ever, and it is a freedom that only God can give. We've been talking about freedom, and we can contrast the ideas ideas of freedom and slavery, because Jesus does so in John chapter 8, the passage that we just read. Uh, it's been a while since we were in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, a couple of weeks, so let's quickly recap, bring us all up to speed and remind us of where we are at. This is the Light of the World Discourse. Jesus has twice, once in verse 24, once in verse 28, declared himself to be the I Am, the eternal God of the Old Testament. As a result of that, in this, in this discourse, it says in verse 29 that many came to believe in him. Verse 31, sorry, verse 30, many came to believe in him. Verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, so he has He has sort of laid out his claims to deity, and a number of Jews have professed some sort of faith in him, a belief in him. But the rest of this discourse is addressed, verse 31 and onward, to those Jews who had believed in him, and the rest of this discourse and everything that follows demonstrates that those who had believed in him were not truly disciples. They were not truly saved. Jesus goes on to tell these who had believed in him that they were still intending to murder him. They hated him. His word had no place in them. They did the deeds of their father. Their father was the devil, and they were still locked in darkness and in sin. They were not indeed truly saved and truly free. So the rest of this discourse by Jesus is intended to reveal that their faith was nothing more than a facade and an empty and shallow one at that for their murderous and unbelieving hearts. Everything that he says from this point forward is intended to show that their belief was a shallow belief. It did not go far enough. And it was merely a faith that embraced certain elements of his message and his demands, but not all of them. Because these men, who had believed in verse 31 and 32, remained unregenerate, enemies of God, sons of Satan, and in the kingdom of darkness. That is hard to grasp, but that is what the rest of the discourse shows us. So they were still in sin. In verse 32, 33, and the rest of this is intended to show that they were still in the bondage of iniquity. And so Jesus, hoping to reveal their unbelieving heart, says, Let me give you three things which are true of my disciples. Number one, my disciples truly, true disciples, will continue in my word. They will not begin in truth and then quickly abandon it. They won't apostatize. They will continue in my truth and in my word in obedience to Jesus In sound doctrine, not turning away from sound doctrine, and continuing to walk in him. They will persevere all the way to the end. True disciples persevere and continue in his word. The second mark, you will know the truth. You will see the truth. The truth will be revealed to you. You will love the truth. You will apprehend the truth. You will obey the truth. You will know it, and you will rejoice in knowing the truth, which is something unbelievers don't have. And the third mark is that they would then be free. The truth would set them free. So you will continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Those three things mark a true disciple. And their response instantly demonstrates that they were not free, they did not know the truth, and they weren't about to continue in his word. In fact, their response shows that in all three of those marks, they failed to meet the test. You will continue, you will know the truth, the truth will make you free, and they instantly show that they are not interested in continuing his word, they do not know the truth, and they certainly are not free. And their denial demonstrates all three of those things. Now, what Jesus has just said in promising them freedom implies something about them. Did you catch what it is? If you continue in my word, then you will be free. That implies something. What is it? That you're not free, right? If I offer to make you free, it implies that I'm saying what? That you're not free. This gets up their noses instantly. They don't like that. We're not free. How do you mean we're not free? By offering to make us free, you're implying that we're in bondage to someone or to something. And this they do not like. So that brings us up to verse 33 and 34. In verse 33, we're going to look at their reaction. And then verse 34, Jesus' teaching concerning slavery to sin. Verse 33 is their reaction. Read it with me. Verse 33, they answered him and said, What you talking about, Willis? Now that's the message paraphrase of that phrase, of that translation, but that's exactly what they were saying. They are indignant, they are insulted, they are appalled, they are their moral indignation that he would suggest that they are in sin. They're Abraham's descendants. Now Jesus has just told them, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples. And they immediately do not continue in his word, but they do what? They argue with him. That is not the mark of a true disciple. A true disciple does not argue with the Lord. A true disciple does not say, excuse me, but you need some correction. No true disciple of Jesus says that. A true disciple listens to what Jesus says and responds well to it with obedience. And that's not what they do. That's not what they do. They argue with him. It's kind of a curious thing that they say. Now let's read it in an actual translation and not the message paraphrase. We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free. We're Abraham's descendants. Kind of a curious thing that they bring up. Why do they start talking about Abraham? Well, they're Jews. God had made a covenant with Abraham, an unconditional covenant, where God promised them a land. God promised Abraham a land and a people and the blessings of a covenant and and prosperity and all of that. God said, I'm going to give you all of this. He gave it to Abraham. It was an unconditional covenant. They are Abraham's descendants. They're Abraham's descendants physically. They came from Abraham. They're Abraham's descendants culturally and religiously. They looked back to Abraham as the father of the covenant and looked at all of those blessings that were promised to Abraham and said, those are ours, we enjoy those. We have this land that has been given to us. We have the covenant, we have the temple, we have the sacrifices. We have all of this that comes from being the the progeny of Abraham. We're descendants of him and so we've been given all of these things as a result of that covenant. And in the Jewish way of thinking... If you could point back in your ancestry to some bigwig, some name, someone back there who was significant, a real man of faith and blessing, in the Jewish way of thinking, that was some way of indicating that that blessing resided on you. So it was not uncommon to hear a Jew say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, like Paul does in Philippians chapter 2, for instance. That was something he took pride in. He points back to his tribal lineage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Or to have a Jew say, I'm of the tribe of Judah, or I'm of the tribe of so-and-so, I'm of Levi. If a a Jew could point back to some ancestor, David is in my ancestry, or someone else is in my ancestry, that was indicative to them of God's blessing upon their lineage. And Jews constantly did that, pointed back to somebody in their ancestry as evidence that the blessing of God rested upon them. But you'll notice that these Jews do not point back to any of the 12 tribes, heads of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. They don't uh, point back to Jacob. They don't even point back to Isaac. Who do they point to? Abraham, they go as far up the totem pole as you can possibly go, to the very top, the big wig, the patriarch of the nation. And they are pointing, this is their trump card, they are pointing to the big man and they are saying, we come from Abraham. Now in their way of thinking, to be a descendant of Abraham, and thus to be the recipients of all of those covenant blessings, was utterly incompatible with the idea of being a slave. How could any child of Abraham be a slave? We could trace our lineage all the way back through Judah, through Isaac, through Jacob, all the way to Abraham. And being able to go all the way back to Abraham, how is it that as children of Abraham, we could possibly be enslaved to anyone or anything in any way at any time? Incompatible. With Abraham as their father, they thought that secured for them the blessings of liberty. And part of the Mosaic Covenant, you remember, that they got because they were the children of Israel, children of Abraham. Part of the Mosaic Covenant was this. If you keep my law and obey my commandments, then the nations will serve you. You will not serve the nations. The nations will serve you. You will be on top. You will rule. And the nations will come and they will bring their wealth and they will bring their worship and they will bring their blessings to you. If you keep my law, all of these things will become yours. Now let me ask you this question. Think. Very carefully. Do you think that these Jews believed themselves to be covenant keepers or covenant breakers? Did they think themselves to be covenant keepers or covenant breakers? Covenant keepers. Right. Every Pharisee, every Orthodox Jew regarded himself as a covenant keeper. They would have denied being blasphemers or idolaters or thieves or adulterers at heart. They would have denied ever disobeying their parents or worshiping any other god. They would have denied ever breaking the Sabbath. They thought that all of the legislation that they heaped on top of the Sabbath was their way of keeping and honoring the Sabbath. They viewed themselves as the ultimate self-righteous, righteous by their own self-work, their ultimate self-righteous law keepers. Now here was the covenant. Keep my law and you receive all of these blessings and you will be free. So they have argued now that they have kept the law perfectly. So what should be true of them? They should be free. Now what are they trusting in ultimately? They are trusting in their lineage for righteousness, right? Their ancestry. That's what they're looking toward. They're looking back to Abraham and saying, since we come from him, we are okay in God's sight. Is that true? Do do people do the same thing today? Yeah, right? I was baptized in this church when I was an infant. And then I was baptized again when I was a teenager. And then I got married in this church, and I was baptized again in this church after I got married. And then I got baptized again just to make sure that it was all good and make sure that I was covered entirely in my baptism. I've been baptized five times in five different churches, so I have my bases covered. And my grandfather was a missionary, and my father was a pastor, and my great-grandfather was an author and a famous guy. They look back to their ancestry as proof or evidence indicative of God's blessing upon themselves, and they think that they're righteous before God. That is what the Jews were doing. They were looking back to their ancestry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and thinking, because we have a godly lineage, men of faith who preceded us, we are therefore, as their descendants, okay with God. Do you remember John the Baptist? This was the very thing that John the Baptist warned the Pharisees about. Matthew chapter 3, listen to what John the Baptist says. It says, when, when he, that is, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, listen, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say of yourselves we have abraham as our father for i say to you that from these stones god is able to raise up children to abraham john the baptist understood something about the pharisees and the sadducees and the leading jews of his day of what is it they would just as soon say hey we have abraham as our father we're okay and john the baptist warned them about that don't point to your lineage do not say this. God's able to raise up children from Abraham out of the rocks. You brood of vipers, you ought to instead repent. Stop trusting in your ancestors. Repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That was the warning. Now, to be told to repent or that they needed to be set free, what is their response? We, free from what? Are you suggesting that I'm a sinner? Are you calling me a slave of sin? or somehow implying that we have been in slavery to anyone under any... We are covenant keepers. And that leads them to utter one of the most ridiculous statements that has ever been recorded off of the lips of any person who has ever lived. Of all the ridiculous statements recorded in all of Scripture, this one has to be among the top ten. We have never been enslaved yet to anyone. (laughs) If you're shaking your head, it's because you know Jewish history, right? Remember the Exodus? How many years in in Egypt? Were they not the descendants? 400 years in Egypt. That's, that's almost twice as long as our nation has been a nation. They spent in bondage. And after they got out of Egypt, then what happened? Well, they had that, that brief little window of freedom until they got into the land. And then they were under the dominion of the Mesopotamians and the Philistines and the Moabites and the Philistines, and the Canaanites and the Philistines, the Midianites and the Philistines. Constant dominion during the time of the book of Judges. And then after the time of the book of Judges, what happened? They were conquered by Assyria, and that, remember Nineveh, this capital of Nineveh, there was the Assyrian captivity or the Assyrian invasion. That lasted for over a century. And then there's the Babylonian captivity, which lasted for 70 years after that came the Medes and the Persians, when the Medes and the Persians took over and conquered the Babylonians, they were in bondage to the Medes and the Persians. Then they were conquered by the Greeks, and then or the Greeks and and subjects of Greece, then they were subjects of Syria and ultimately subjects of Rome. That's quite a history, isn't it? You just go back to Egypt all the way through to Rome and what do you get? One long tale of what? Bondage. Bondage. It is so utterly absurd for these men to suggest that they have never been enslaved yet to anyone. I mean, that is almost laughable. While they're saying this, if they are in the temple courtyard, they could look to one of the corners of the temple courtyard and see the Fortress Antonia, where all of the Roman soldiers were stationed, right there in their own temple. And they could have walked outside the temple, and everywhere they looked, they would have been reminded of their captivity, because no matter where they looked, they would have seen evidences of their domination by the Roman Empire. And they're probably speaking Greek which is not even the native tongue of the Hebrew people. Even what they're saying is self-contradictory. We have never yet been enslaved to anybody. And Some people have suggested that really probably what they're doing is they're denying spiritual slavery. But this is not the language of denying spiritual slavery. This is the language of denying physical slavery. We have not yet been enslaved to anyone. They are denying that Jesus is there to set them free from physical bondage. They don't even yet understand that he's talking about spiritual bondage. But they deny it. It's, It's so absurd. They are... You say, well, why then would they say something so absurd? Because they're so blinded. Man's capacity, and this means you and me, our heart's capacity to deceive ourselves is infinite. These men deny history and reality to make the point. We don't need you. That's what they're denying. We don't need you. They're arguing with him, and they're willing to deny what is patently obvious to anyone, just simply to deny the truthfulness of what, he is saying, it is utterly absurd. Now, what do we learn from this? A couple things. Let me give you four quick things that we learn from this. Now, normally, I wrap up a sermon by saying, what do we learn from this? That's not what I'm doing. So don't get your hopes up. We're going to go through these four things, and then we're going to go on to what Jesus teaches about slavery to sin in verse 34. There are four things that we learn about their denial. The first one is this. Their response indicates that, in fact, they were unbelievers. Their response to this is indicative of the fact that they were, this is not how a believer would respond. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He is showing that they were in bondage. They admit that they are in bondage. They know that that is the case, so they're not free. They're not free politically, and they're not free spiritually. They also have not continued in his word because the minute Jesus begins to speak, they instantly contradict him and want to correct him. That's not continuing in his word. That is denying his word and abandoning his word. And they did not know the truth, and they were not willing to admit the truth, not only that they were slaves, but they were were in need of freedom. So their response is indicative of the fact that they were still unbelievers. They're not saved people. An unbeliever, when he hears the Lord say, if you are my disciple, you know the truth, and the truth makes you free, a believer responds to that by saying, yeah, that's right. I have come to know the truth. I once was lost and blind and in darkness, but now I know the truth. Not because of anything inherently good in me, but because of what God has revealed to me. And a believer says, and I am free. I am free today in a way like I have never been free before. I once was a slave of sin. I once was fast bound in sin and nature's night, but no longer. I have been set free and I do no longer serve sin as my master. I am a slave of righteousness, I am learning obedience, I am progressing in sanctification, I no longer slave, serve my old sin slave master. A believer responds to that as and recognizes in Jesus' words that there is precious truth there, but an unbeliever says, no, 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 I'm not a slave. You have me confused with somebody else. That guy might be a slave to sin, but not me. Their denial is evidence that they were in fact unbelievers. Second, slaves of sin hate to be called slaves of sin. Isn't that patently obvious to us? Slaves of sin hate to be called slaves of sin. You want to offend somebody? Go out today for lunch, and when your waitress walks up, accuse her of being a slave of sin. Accuse her of being somebody who is totally controlled, owned by, and dominated by sin. And make sure you do that after she brings you your food. Because you will deeply and grievously offend her. Slaves of sin hate to be called slaves of sin. They deny that truth. They hate it. They respond poorly to it. They detest the fact that you might suggest that they are in bondage to anybody. We all value liberty, right? Everybody does. Nobody likes to be called a slave, and nobody likes to have it affirmed to them that they are a slave of sin. Unbelievers or slaves of sin hate to be called slaves of sin. Third, the evidence of their slavery is their denial of their slavery. Now catch this. The evidence of their slavery is their denial of their slavery. You're a slave of sin. No, we're not a slave of sin. We don't need you, thanks. Thanks. All that is is a self-righteous assertion of their own independence and, and lack of need for Jesus. That pride is the very thing that held them in bondage. When they denied that they needed liberty, that in itself was proof that they were slaves of sin and they could not even see it they could not even respond well because sin had them bound. It would be like you taking a blind man out in the in the brightness of the noonday sun and saying, "You need to be healed so that you can see the sun in the sky." And having the blind man say, "I don't need to be healed. There is no sun in the sky." The fact that he denies that there's a sun in the sky is evidence of the fact that he is blind. The fact that these men deny the need to be set free is evidence of their slavery. Fourth, notice how common it is that this bondage, uh, notice how common this bondage is among those who believe themselves to be free. How common it is for this bondage to exist among those who believe themselves to be free. You will even find people who believe themselves to be spiritually free who live in the bondage of iniquity constantly. You see people who are slaves to sin, they live in sin, they love sin, they dive into sin, they give no thought to righteousness, but they will constantly affirm, no, 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 I'm free. I've had an experience with Jesus. I've been born again. I've been saved. I've come to know the truth, and yet they live in constant slavery to sin. It is a very common thing for those who are slaves of sin to be in the, or sorry for those who claim to be free to be in this very type of bondage that they were in. They were in the type of bondage that they could not see and they could not understand and they couldn't even acknowledge. In fact, so enslaved to sin were they that they cannot even admit that they are slaves because sin keeps them from admitting their slavery. Isn't that a hideous slavery? All right, now let's look at Jesus' response. Verse 33 is their denial. Verse 34, Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now that verse is so loaded with theology, with implications and with doctrine, that we're only going to begin to look at that this morning. We're going to flesh out the implications of it next week. It is such a profound statement evidenced by the fact that Jesus begins by saying truly, truly. If you go back through John's Gospel, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, it's as if he's saying, listen, because what I am about to say is of utter importance and profundity. Listen carefully, truly, truly. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now that clarifies that everything he has been talking about is not national bondage, It's not political bondage. It's not national slavery of any sort, any kind of physical slavery. He is talking about spiritual slavery to a taskmaster that is the worst of all taskmasters, and that is sin. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, a couple things to notice. Number one, Jesus is describing unbelievers, not believers. He is describing unbelievers, not believers. You saw this in Romans 6. It cannot be said of a believer that they are still slaves of sin. The genuine believer has been set free from sin. And this is even evidenced in the language that Jesus uses. When he uses the term, uh, everyone who commits sin, he is using a present tense form of that verb indicating an ongoing condition. So it is as if Jesus would have said this, everyone who continues perpetually in an unbroken lifestyle and pattern of sin is, in fact, the slave to sin. He is not describing an individual act of sin. So let me give you an important illustration that shows you the difference. Do you sin? Yeah, you do. If you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourselves, you call God a liar, and the truth is not in you. You do sin. I sin, you sin. We've all, probably all of us sinned before we even got here this morning. Did you fail to thank God for the breath of air that you took when you first woke up? If you fail to thank Him, you're a sinner. There you go. Case closed. We're all sinned. We've all sinned. Sometime this morning, we have sinned because we have failed to give God Everything that he is due, we're incapable of him doing that. So you and I sin. We sin probably on a daily basis. Well, all okay. right. I know I sin on a daily basis. My sin is getting less and less severe and less and less frequent as God sanctifies me. But I sin. Does that mean a, does that mean that I am still today a slave of sin? It doesn't. It means I'm being sanctified. I have been set free from sin, but I'm no longer a slave. But if I claim to you that Christ was my Savior and my Lord, and I continued in a pattern of habitual unrepentant lifestyle of unbroken sin, that is proof of what? That I remain a slave to sin and that Satan is my father and my taskmaster and that I am still in darkness. That is exactly what J- John is, Jesus is saying. The one who continually lives in an unbroken state of sin without having his pattern of sin broken or reversed is in fact still in bondage to sin. Now, that, that wording and that language may sound familiar to you if you've studied 1 John, because in John's first epistle, he describes this very truth, and he fleshes it out a little bit. Without quoting Jesus, John uses similar language, the same verb tense, and he says this in chapter 3, "...everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He, that is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in Christ there is no sin." No one who abides in him continues in sin. That's the tense and the idea of. No one who abides in him continues in an unbroken, habitual pattern of life sin. No one who sins or continues to sin has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin, that is, continually ongoing in sin, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God continually practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. That's John's commentary on what Jesus is saying in John 8.34. The one who continues in an unbroken pattern of sin still has the devil as his father. That's what Jesus is saying. So he is describing unbelievers who have continued in a pattern of sin, and unbroken and unreversed, they are the slaves of sin. And he is describing, second of all, all unbelievers, all of them. There is no unbeliever that does not fit this description, because all unbelievers live in a habitual pattern of sin. Everything they think is sin, everything they do is sin, everything they desire is sin, all of it is sinful because it all comes from an unregenerate, fallen, sinful human nature that is wicked and depraved and corrupt at its very core. And so everything that an unbeliever does is sin. All unbelievers are slaves to sin. First Peter, or Second Peter I should say, chapter 2 verse 19 says the false teachers that they promote or promise people freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Unbelievers are slaves of corruption because they are overcome by corruption. They're corrupt in their nature and their desires. Their speech is corrupt. Their thinking is corrupt. The desires of their hearts is corrupt. They are overcome by corruption because they are enslaved by sin. Second 2 Peter 2.19. Titus 3.3, 3, Paul describes us. For we... Also, once we're foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We served or we were enslaved to lusts and pleasures. Acts 8.23, when Peter met Simon the sorcerer, Peter said, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Romans 6.17, which we read this morning, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That was you, by the way. Slave of sin. A true believer who has a penitent heart that has been changed by God will readily, quickly acknowledge that and nod their head and say, that's right, I was a slave of sin. I may have got saved when I was six years old, but I was a slave of sin because that's what Scripture says I was. I may have been saved at 60 years old, and I can tell you I lived 60 years as a slave of sin. A true believer acknowledges, I was once a slave of sin, in bondage to it, living it, and serving it. Everyone who commits, continually practices sin is a doulos, that's the word for slave, a doulos of sin. Are you familiar with that word? It's not the word for servant, which meant that, like a hired hand that could come and go and and leave and come at at their master's, at their own pleasure. Somebody who just sort of dips in and out of service like a hired hand that comes for a while and leaves for another... No, 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 a doulos was somebody who was a bond slave. It is the the strongest, the ultimate word for for slavery and servanthood, uh, slavery and enslavement that you could use. There's a difference between somebody who was a servant, who would be hired, and a doulos, somebody who is owned. John MacArthur, in his book called Slave, Describe slaves this way. Servants have an element of freedom in choosing whom they work for and what they do. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom, autonomy, or rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were considered property to the point that in the eyes of the law they were regarded as things rather than persons. To be someone's slave was to be his possession, bound to obey his will without hesitation or argument. End quote. Do you hear that? Bound to obey the master's will without hesitation or argument. Everyone who commits sin, all unbelievers, are bound to obey sin without hesitation or argument. And slaves to sin never argue against sin. Slaves to sin love sin. Not only they're enslaved to it, they love it so. You go to an unbeliever and you say, Turn from your sin and abandon your sin. What are you, crazy? I love sin. I enjoy doing what I'm doing. And even though sin may destroy them, they still love sin. And they're enslaved to it. Bound to obey their master's will. The Westminster Theological Word Book of the the Bible says this, describes doulos this way. The Greek noun doulos is a subdomain of the semantic field, which means to control or rule, and describes someone who is completely controlled by something or someone else. Someone who is completely controlled by something or someone else. The sinner, listen, is completely controlled by sin. Now I ask you this, we'll get into this more next week. Does the sinner have free will? Or is he completely, in the words of Jesus, controlled and dominated by sin? This is a watershed theological issue. This is at the foundation and ground of right gospel proclamation and understanding the gospel rightly. Is man free to do whatever he wants, or is man under the control and domination of sin? What does Jesus say? All unbelievers, everyone who continues in sin is a what? A do loss of sin. He is owned by sin. He is enslaved by sin. Everything he thinks is sin. Everything he does is sin. Everything he desires is sin. He has no will of his own because his will is completely under the control of his corrupt And sinful nature. He cannot set himself free from sin. This is why the Bible continually describes fallen man in terms of inability. The unbelieving man is unable to come to Christ unless the Father who sent him draws him. Why? That was John 6. Why is that true? Because the unbeliever is bound to sin. You can't simply call out to him and have him swim to shore to avoid drowning. He's drowning and dead at the bottom of the sin. He is enslaved to his corrupt and sinful nature. He is unable to please God. He is unable to understand spiritual things. He cannot subject his heart to the law of God, Romans 8. He cannot do righteousness. He cannot please God. He cannot exercise faith. He cannot believe. He can do nothing. He can do nothing apart from the sovereign regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Why? Because he is a slave to sin. The one who continues in sin is in bondage to it. And he, a, look, a Dulos couldn't just set himself free anytime he wanted. I'm done. I just picked up the key from my master's table, set myself free. I'm walking in it. Doulos didn't have that freedom. A doulos was owned. A doulos was completely controlled by the whims of its master. So the unbeliever is a doulos of sin. So who or what controls the unbeliever? It's not rocket science. It's sin. That is what controls the unbeliever. Can the unbeliever do anything apart from sin? Nothing. Does he have any freedom from sin whatsoever? Nothing. Can he leave sin? He can't leave sin. Can he choose not to sin? He can't choose not to sin. Can he choose to stop sinning? Can he choose to do righteousness? Can he actually do righteousness? Sin will not allow him to do any of those things. That is how helpless an unbeliever truly is. And this applies to your little child, too. My little Billy, your little Billy. Your little Billy. It's described in Romans 8.34. He is a doulos of sin. And you know what sets doulos free from sin? Only one thing. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That is the only answer. This has massive implications for parenting, for counseling, for evangelism, for church ministry, for everything we do as Christians, and all will eventually come back to this truth, which is total depravity. Some people hate it. They resist it. They attack it. They don't like it. They frown. All of those things are true. But it is nevertheless eminently biblical. The one who continues in sin is in bondage to sin. Now, that ought to do two things for you. Number one, it ought to give you compassion on the person that you're dealing with that you wish would come to know Christ to understand how enslaved they are to sin. But it ought to do a second thing. It ought to magnify for you the grace of God. You did not set yourself free. You did not, by an act of your own decision, choose to do which is right. You did not earn God's favor. You did nothing to liberate yourself from the enslaving demands of your master. You were a doulos. You know what happened? Christ came in and he drew you to himself. And by the power of the sovereign spirit of God, he granted you repentance, gave you faith to believe, turned your heart toward him, gave you an affection toward Christ, gave you a brand new nature, and delivered you from slavery to sin by the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But listen, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Is there any freedom more valuable than that? There's none. This is the most valuable freedom. And we'll look at some of the implications of it next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you, by your grace, have made a people free for your own pleasure and for your own joy and for your own glory. We could never rejoice in our salvation or give ourselves praise and glory for what we have done, for we did nothing to deserve this. We deserved only your wrath. We deserved only your displeasure. But you, by your grace, did all of these things in opening our eyes and setting us free. Thank you that the Son has set us free. And may we rejoice in that freedom and be mindful constantly of the slavery that others are under that need the liberating truth of the gospel. Thank you that the great and glorious aim of the gospel is to set men free. And thank you for bringing that freedom to us, your people, in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.